0: First off, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll have uh, one of our faithful ushers or deacons come by and put, put one in your hand. It'll be marked to 1 uh, Samuel. Um, and so I'm saying 1 Samuel because we're going to go through a lot of 1 Samuel. Um, I'll be reading a lot of scripture initially and in, in, in quite a few different chapters. But it is important to do that as we lead up to really what the message is about and so we're going to be looking at at the bond of a brother today. And it's really, uh, the message is is historical in nature, so that's why it's a little different for me today. I'm going to be telling a story of David and Jonathan. But first, you have to have the context of leading up to David's anointing as king and Jonathan coming on the scene as the son of a king. So I find their story fascinating in that you have the bloodline heir to the throne, right? Uh, Jonathan is the son of Saul. And then you have David, who comes on the scene as a young shepherd boy, uh, but is later appointed by God to be the king. And amazingly, Jonathan supports David to be king, as we'll see later. It takes humility and obedience to God to support someone else in the position that would appear to be yours. And that's what we see in Jonathan. Both were valiant men for the Lord. Both were mighty warriors. And both were called by God for a specific purpose. And we'll see that no one, even their families, can come between them. But we also need to look at the roles of Samuel and Saul and what they played in leading up to David's anointing as king. We will see a nation of Israel crying out for a king instead of waiting on the king that God was preparing. We'll be in 1 Samuel uh, 20 at the end of our study, uh, but we will go through five or six other chapters, not completely, but we'll go through five or six other chapters to kind of um, set the stage for David and Jonathan's um, bond. First, let's start in the book of Judges. Two books before 1 Samuel. You you guys don't have to turn there. Sorry. Don't have to turn there. Okay? Just stay where you're at. Uh, So two books before Samuel. The key verse and the last verse is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This was a book about a time in Israel when there was no king. Hence the title Judges. Think of it this way. If uh, in our country we have states, if every state had a judge and no federal government above it, that's kind of what it would be like for us. And so if you might actually like that. Um, So no king during the time of judges. Also during the time of judges, the book of Ruth, which is the next book after judges. Um, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, marries Ruth And through that union, we see the line of David and ultimately the Messiah. So that that book um, takes place at the same time as Judges, okay? Then we see, um, let me just go through that line a little bit. So Ruth and Boaz marry and they have a son, Obed. Obed has a son, Jesse. Jesse has many sons and one of them is David. The great grandson of Boaz and Ruth, in First Samuel, Israel wanted a king like other nations, and God gave them Saul. And then finally, in Second Samuel, I'm sorry, Second Samuel, David ascends to the throne of Israel. I knew I was going to transpose Saul and Samuel, but anyway, in Second Samuel, David ascends to the throne. So let's look at it this way: Judges was the book of no king. Ruth is the book of preparing a king. 1 Samuel is man's king. 2 Samuel, God's king. Okay. Um, one other thing about Samuel. He is the writer of Judges, Ruth, and most of 1 Samuel. I don't think he, you can uh, ascribe him to the whole book. But um, certainly Samuel plays a very big part in the history of Israel. So let's look at 1 um, Samuel chapter one, we're going to start in verse eight, and we're going to look at um, how Samuel comes on the scene. First, let me pray for the word. Father, this morning as we open up your word, we are thankful uh, for all that it gives us. Lord, the depth, the strength, Lord, the correction, the rebuke, the guidance. Lord, for the love that You have shown for us by giving us the word, Lord. Now may Your heart and Your words be on my lips, Lord. Take me out of it, Lord. That You'd be honored, Lord. That, uh, Lord, our hearts are ready to receive those things You have for us as Your children. Thank You, Jesus, in Your name. Amen. Okay, so we're starting in verse eight, and we're going to go through twenty-six. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul, and prayed to the Lord, and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant. But you will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give to him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli watched her, uh, Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maid servant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him, From the Lord. Now the man, Elkanah, and all his house went up to offer to the Lord their yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him. Then he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took her up, she took him up with her with three bulls, one ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, "O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed." And the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I have also lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. Okay, so we see a woman in Hannah who's crying out to the Lord. She so wants to have a child. Uh, Elkanah's other wife, Peninnah, uh, had been... um, Making fun of Hannah because she couldn't conceive. It kind of reminds you of, of Abraham, doesn't it? So she went many years and uh, couldn't conceive a child. Um, and before I go on, you know, you see multiple wives here, and there's plenty of places in the Bible where that is um, seen. And, you know, I think people can struggle with that as to why God would allow that. Well, the Jewish law allowed it and also allowed divorce. But God never, in Scripture, shines a favorable light on multiple wives, not, not once. He always designed marriage for one man and one woman. There's, there's no other design that he has. So if you ever wondered about that, think of it in that terms. Elkanah had married Hannah first, and when she could not conceive, he married Peninnah. But Elkanah had a special place in his heart for Hannah. So, Hannah has a male child, Samuel, which means herd of God. She dedicates him to the service of the Lord. Elkanah, who is a godly man, also dedicates him to the Lord as a living sacrifice. So, he will be a Levite, he'll be a Nazarite, if you remember the razor not touching his hair, he'll be a prophet and the judge. He will be the last judge and the first prophet. He will faithfully serve the Lord and Israel, and he plays a very important part in Jewish history. All right, now, when I do this, that means you've got to turn. We're going to go to uh, chapter 8. Turn to chapter 8. So now you see Samuel's on the scene. All right, so we'll be in, we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 21. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel, and the second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways, and they turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all of the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. One quick comment here. It's it's no different today that when we vote and a president's elected, that's that's who we wanted, right? Whoever wins, whether it's President Trump, President Obama, President Bush, that that is who the church, I'm sorry, that's who the country cried out for, okay? And it's no different here. They're crying out for man's king here. Verse 6, but the thing that displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. Uh, So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And remember, Samuel was a judge. So It might have bothered him that why they needed someone else to judge their country. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that you all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. One of the key things here, and it's through this whole, um, it's actually through Israel's history is he's always been the, God's always been the strength of Israel. Always been. The, in fact, he's called the strength of Israel. So that's what they're rejecting right now as they ask for a king. Verse eight: According to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now, therefore, heed the voice; however, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. These next verses uh, are amazing to me. They are warned exactly what Saul's going to be like. Verse 10, so Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. That's not a good job. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow his ground and reap his his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to work. And he will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants and you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Amazing warning. And what do they say? Yeah, we're good. We're good with that. That's okay. We we want a king. Verse 19, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but we will have a king over us, that we, that we also may be like the other nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Verse 21, and Samuel heard the words of all the people, and he repeated them in, in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. Key turning point in the history of Israel right here. Uh, The elders of Israel wanted a king, much like the nations around them. So they take their request to Samuel, who was known to be the spiritual leader of Israel, but he's now in an advanced age. He's got two knucklehead sons who are not in a position to lead uh, the, the, uh, the the country of Israel. So there's nothing there that can continue on. So Samuel takes us to the Lord, and when he returns, he warns the people of what the king's going to do, but they still want him. Now, it's okay for them to want a king. That's That's not a bad thing, but they don't want God's king, and God's still preparing his king, and so God allows Saul to be king. The elders had forgotten that God's the strength of Israel, and all the while, As the Lord's preparing David to be their king, they're they're not willing to wait. So the Lord gives the nation of Israel Saul. And one of the ways that God can judge us is He gives us what we what we want and what we ask for. So um, that hasn't changed, right? That that happens to us as a country, it happens to us individually. Uh, We have to be seeking God and his will for us. So let's take a a look at Saul for a few minutes. He was uh, strong. He was a handsome, handsome dude. Um, You know, kind of what you would want your king to look like. Uh, He would be the one uh, that Israel wanted to lead them in battle. And so in chapter 9, Samuel anoints Saul king after the Lord confirms that to Samuel. Initially, Saul was reluctant. He didn't even understand that he was to be king. Um, Something troubling now happens where he doesn't even seem to know Samuel. Samuel's a spiritual leader of Israel. So Saul was a farmer, maybe just kept his head down and, and, you know, plowed the fields, but not knowing what was going on within Israel's borders regarding spiritual matters, I think gives a little bit of an insight into the type of man Saul was. Then Samuel presents Saul to the nation of Israel as their new king. One problem, Saul can't be found. So uh, I, I, I think of it this way. Imagine if we have our conventions, you know, Democratic, Republic, Republican conventions, and someone's going to get nominated, and they nominate him, and now you can't find him or her. So that's, that's a big deal, and, and Saul has to, uh, Samuel has to deal with Saul and his, his lack of confidence in being a king. Now, once Saul becomes king, he does have some success on the battlefield because initially he aligned himself with Samuel uh, and God's Spirit empowered him and gave him a victory. Um, so Saul had the authority given by God and he passed his first test. After that, Saul makes some unwise decisions. So in chapter 13, Saul's son Jonathan comes on the scene, and this is the differing paths of Jonathan and David. Um, I'm going to guess the uh, PowerPoint I sent did not get uh, did not get put up there, but that's okay. So. My first point here is the different paths that, that um, Jonathan and David take before, they, um, before God bonds them together. So chapter 13, as I said, Saul's uh, son Jonathan comes on the scene. Uh, we see that Saul's dividing up his standing army uh, between himself. He's taken 2,000 men and Jonathan. He's given Jonathan 1,000 men. That seems fair. Um, now, originally in his first battle, he had 300,000 men volunteer to serve in the army. Why he whittles it down to 3,000, it's not a Gideon type of situation where, you know, the Lord tells him to, no, you don't need that many, you don't need that many. No, this is Saul being Saul. So he whittles it, he, he brings it down to 3,000. Now, they're in the middle of a, a battle with the Philistines, and, and so Jonathan takes his 1,000, uh, to Geba and he he, uh, he goes into battle, and he wins a great battle against the Philistines. Saul has 2,000 men, but the Philistines are encamped around them, and they had a greater army in size. So Saul basically did nothing for a time, and he's um, impatiently waiting for Samuel to show up. While he's waiting, some of his army starts to desert, so his army gets down significantly, and um, so and Saul makes a, a, a very poor decision and decides to do the sacrifice himself instead of waiting for Samuel. And uh, so he's doing it for the wrong reasons at the wrong time. He was to wait for Samuel, but he doesn't do that. So when Samuel arrives uh, in verse 13 of chapter 13, he's telling Saul, you have disobeyed the Lord, and now you've lost your kingdom. So let's look at those uh, those few verses. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And usually we think of that phrase um, when we think of David. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So Saul's time as a king from this point forward is counting down. Jonathan, however, continues to be a mighty warrior and a a man of action. So he turns Saul's situation around um, because he still has the Philistines encamped around him and gives Israel another great victory. But All the while, Saul's taken credit for Jonathan's successes in the battlefield. So we've seen Jonathan act in faith with the courage only the Lord gives, and we see his father hesitate with unbelief. It it makes you wonder, at least it made me wonder, why God would bless Saul with such a great son, a wonderful son. And yet Samuel, his two sons... Are corrupt in their uh, in their judgeship over their territory, so don't know why that is, but that's that's what we see here. As time goes by, and we see more of Saul's heart, he becomes jealous of his own son, whose popularity has grown. Uh, I like what Warren Weersby has said about Saul, and I think you'll see the parallel of what we even see today as in politicians, Warren Wiersbe said, Saul is a tragic example of the popular man of the world who tries to appear religious and do God's work, but who lacks a living faith in God and a heart to honor him. So we I, I know I've seen that myself. You could apply this to others, I'm sure. Uh, but, you know, Saul... Uh, He just wasn't, he he didn't love the Lord. He didn't seek the Lord. And ultimately, it cost him his throne. In chapter 15, we see Samuel speak plainly once again to Saul. Saul had continued to spiral out of control, blaming others. He was taking credit for Jonathan's victories, he was lying to cover sin. But our God will not be mocked. And so, in verses 22 and 23, of chapter 15, we see Samuel say, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Let me say that again. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So Samuel's telling Saul, your rule is over, and God's prepared someone better to lead Israel. That's uh, a hard thing to hear. Uh, In fact, Saul basically is rejecting us. Um, So what, what What this is saying is the Lord wanted Israel to obey and wait for their king, but they would not. Even even knowing that this would happen, it grieves the Lord that his people had to go through this. So in chapter 16, God chooses his king, and God sends Samuel to go see Jesse the Bethlehemite because God has provided a king among his sons. The Lord first speaks to Samuel in one of my favorite verses, verse 7, So we're in chapter 16 now. Verse 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Samuel has met Jesse's seven sons. On number eight, we see the king. David's brought from the field, and the Lord says to anoint him for he is the one. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David that day. And as for, as for Saul, the spirit of the Lord departed him. He was troubled and his servants can see it. And so Saul asks for someone who can play skillfully and who does the Lord send him? David. Uh, so David comes to Saul and he finds favor in his sight it's temporary. For the next several chapters, God is preparing David to be king. We see David's courage and confidence in the Lord as he fights and defeats Goliath. Let's put this, let's think about this for a second. So David, probably about 17 about this time, and um, he's taken on Goliath. Goliath was close to 10 feet tall. His coat weighed 125 pounds and his spear, 15 pounds. That's a big fellow. Um, so Saul, of course, he's still king and remember he was a big, strong, handsome guy, but he's as paralyzed as everyone else. So here comes David. Uh, he's, he's bringing supplies to the battlefield and uh, he's here in Goliath just talking trash. He's just all over his, Israel's army and then he's blaspheming the Lord. David is not liking any of this. So he's He's getting angry. And so he says, if no one's going to step up, I'm going to step up. So uh, we had also learned that while David was shepherd, he had killed lions and bears. So we, we understand he was a, a mighty warrior, but also had the courage of the Lord. So one other thing about this, uh, David and Goliath, I find it, you know, it's funny. The Lord shows you things you can read it a million times. And I found it funny that David, you know, as he's getting armor on, he's, he says, you know, what, this, this doesn't fit right. It doesn't feel right. I'm not, I'm not. I don't need it. I'm not bringing it. So he goes out, as we all know, uh, and, and he, he just needs one stone. And so he strikes Goliath with the stone and the stone sinks into his forehead and he falls face first. Right. And any of you guys have ever watched a fight know that when someone goes down face first, he's out. In this case, he's dead. He goes down, David cuts his head off, and you know the rest of the story. But David wins a great victory. It's his first public victory for Israel. And he becomes very popular right away. Now we're going to get to the part where it took me a long time to get there, I understand. But the, the bonding that it is through the blood of Christ, which is uh, really the, the heart of the, the message. Uh, So in chapter 18, we see David and Jonathan's bond begin. And there's some unique characteristics to their close friendship. By this time, David's about 20 years old, and Jonathan is about 40 years old. So kind of old enough to be his father, but a significant age difference. Um, David is already at right about 20 years old, which you had to be 20 to, be, to go to battle um, for Israel at, at this time. Um, so he's already a high-ranking officer at the age of 20. Uh, Jonathan is heir to the throne. David has accepted his role to be king in God's timing. And while all this is going on, um, Jonathan's father is doing his best to hold on to the throne. So their souls are knitted together, Scripture tells us. And they make a covenant with each other. So what just happened? We've seen Saul send David out to battle. He comes back, and upon his return, if you look in verses 6 through 9, the women are praising David for his victories, kind of while putting Saul down. So starting in verse 6 of chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, now what happened is they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, with musical instruments. So the women sang and they danced and said, Saul is slain as thousands and David is 10 thousands. Verse eight. Then Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David 10 thousands. And to me, they have ascribed only thousands. Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? And a key verse, we see the start of the issue with Saul and David. So Saul eyed David from that day forward. So after David had killed Goliath, the Philistines took off. Many of them were killed as um, uh, David and and the army went after him. David comes back. The women are singing. David slain 10,000. Saul 1,000, it was on the top 40 for a lot of weeks in Israel. <laughs> Saul's not liking it. And so from that day forward, he's watching, he's watching David. So Saul has become increasingly angry and jealous. And David would really no longer be welcome in Saul's presence. He, he'll, he'll be back and spend some time with him, but it's really not welcome. David uh, David marries Saul's daughter, and that was a promise for whoever would slay Goliath. But Saul continues to send David out to battle, hoping that the Philistines would do his dirty work and defeat and kill David. When that doesn't work, Saul becomes more bold, and he tells his servants, including Jonathan, that he wants David killed. But Jonathan, in his uh, great love, For his brother in the Lord and for his friend is not going to let that happen. So he warns David to hide out for a time until he could speak with his father. And Jonathan pleads for David to Saul. And he reminds his father of all that David has done for him. And Jonathan asks his father, why will you shed innocent blood? Saul heeds Jonathan's words and says, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. So David again is allowed to return to Saul. And again, David is sent to battle, and again he is victorious. This time it brings Saul, Scripture tells us, a distressing spirit. And Saul again is bent on killing David. So David again has to flee. And now Saul's plotting to kill him by sending um, messengers to David's house. Yet David, he remains untouchable. This is the Lord's protection for him. Uh, so no matter what Saul is planning, there's nothing that he could do to David because that's he can't thwart God's plans. So in chapter 20, we're getting to the good stuff now, we see in greater detail the bond between David and Jonathan. Saul's persecution of David is continuing, and the two mighty warriors for the Lord plot to keep David safe from Saul's attempts to kill David. Now, think of Jonathan at this point. He's in a very difficult place. He wants to be loyal to his father, but he also knows David's the appointed king. That's his brother in the Lord. Their friendship is unbreakable. So he has you know, two sides here. Certainly, his ultimate loyalty is to David, as we will see. One of the most uh, painful choices that we have, it's a difficult choice, is balancing our faith with our family. This is where Jonathan is exactly where he's at. So I know there's some of you here that are praying for your prodigals. There's some here praying for family members that, that don't know Jesus yet. We're all, we all have those things, right? And yet we all have our love for the Lord that gives us a priority that someone who doesn't know the Lord, uh, they don't have that priority. So our priorities must be in order. Jonathan had that. Our priorities begin with God, right? He's first in our life. And when our family doesn't understand that, or even just, you know, neighbors or uh, anyone who just doesn't know the Lord, when when they don't understand that key Christian principle, there's going to be strife. So Jonathan is living this out uh, as he knows God's plan for David, and God has bonded these two together, and it's they're inseparable, and and we won't look at it. Today, but even after Jonathan's death, David honors that bond and will care for um, Jonathan's family. So, in uh, let's look at the, uh, we'll, we'll start right in, in verse one. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? What is my sin before your father? And he seeks my life. You kind of see that David's a little frantic here. Uh, So uh, in chapter 20, verse 1, he comes right to Jonathan and says, What's going on? What did I do? Why is this happening? So Jonathan said to him in verse 2, By no means you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Then David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is a step between me and death. Think about that. David is feeling like he's on the edge. He's just a step away from losing his life. We'll, we'll all take that step someday. Sometimes we'll know it's coming. Other times we won't. But that's where, he, that's where Jonathan feels he is. He is but one step away from death. He is really uh, trying to make Jonathan understand this is how I feel. I am, you know, need your help. So Jonathan said to David, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. Verse five And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I shall not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go, that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asks permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant." For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? So there's their, that's their plan, right? David's not going to be at the table. Jonathan's got to give him this story. And we'll find out if Saul means harm or uh, David would be safe. So Jonathan says in verse nine, far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me? Or what if your father answers you roughly? In in this next section here, you'll find it's kind of cool that Jonathan's now speaking and David's silent and and Jonathan's really encouraging and he's really going to put the rest David's anxiety here. He says, "'And Jonathan said to David,' this is verse 11, "'Come, let us go out into the field.' So both of them went out onto the field, and Jonathan said to David, "'The Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I will send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so,' and much more to Jonathan. "'But if it pleases my father to do you evil.' Then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, let the the Lord require it." at the hand of David's enemies. Verse 17, Now Jonathan again caused David to vow, because he loved them. For he loved them as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is a new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed, and remain there by the stone easel. Then I will shoot three hours Three arrows to the side, as though I shot at a target. "'And there I will send a lad, saying, "'Go and find the arrows. "'If I expressly say to the lad, "'Look, the arrows are on this side of you. "'Get them and come. "'Then, as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. "'But if I say thus to the young man, "'Look, the arrows, the arrows are beyond you. "'Go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. And for the, "'And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, Indeed, the Lord be between you and me forever. Verses 24 through 29, David explains, uh, Jonathan explains David's absence, absence to Saul. And so now that as they have a plan, and the plan is basically, I'm going to shoot arrows. If the arrows are in front of you, you're safe. If they're beyond you, you have to go. So that, that's their plan. And so Jonathan talks to Saul at the table, and um, Saul is angry. And so uh, there, becomes a time, there comes a time when they know from this point on that David has to, has to flee. So looking at verse 30, Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman... Do I not know that you have chosen a son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now, therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Saul cast a spear at him to kill him by which Jonathan knew it was determined by his father to kill David. That's a pretty good uh, clue right there. Verse 34, so Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David with the little lad, and a little lad was with him. And he said to the lad, now run, find the arrows which I shoot. As the lad ran, he shot an, hour, an arrow beho- beyond him. And when the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, is not the hour beyond you? As Jonathan cried out after the lad, make haste, hurry, do not delay. So Jonathan's lad, gathered up the arrows and came back to his master but the lad did not know anything only jonathan and david knew of the matter then jonathan gave his weapons to the lad and said to him go carry to the city as soon as the lad had gone david arose from a place in the earth a uh, place toward the south fell on his fell on his face to the ground and bowed down 3 times and they kissed one another and they wept together but david more so then jonathan said to david go in peace since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord saying, may the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed. Then Jonathan went into the city. So we did see that time uh, where Jonathan is basically protecting and encouraging David uh, in the middle of this chapter and telling him, this is what we're going to do. I'll find out what my father's plans are based on that. This is what you're going to have to do. That's Jonathan being a great friend to David. He had humbled himself as he knew he wasn't going to be the king. uh, Even though he had served the Lord mightily, he protected David, encouraged him. And all this was during very difficult times for David. David had to run from Saul, but it wasn't because of any sin. Saul had turned evil and he was looking to kill David. So in this time of David fleeing and and loneliness, and it was a significant period of time, and the solitude and being in caves, he wrote some of the most beautiful Psalms. At this time, though, God was preparing and shaping him to be the next king. And all the time, Jonathan was his good friend and brother in the Lord. At the end of the chapter, you see an emotional goodbye between two people, and they'll see each other again, but they know their paths are are now going in different directions. Jonathan will return to be a, an officer in his father's army. Uh, David is gonna be on the run. Um, so David flees and he goes um, not very far away, but um, Jonathan returns home. And so as God would have it, the Philistines will kill Saul, Jonathan and the brothers on the, on the battlefield. Um, So the Philistines, who they be a continual enemy of Israel, um, end up taking Jonathan's life and and his brothers. And that's 10 years later. Um, David would end up honoring his word to Jonathan when he took care of his lame son, Mephibosheth. So uh, their bond was uh, so very strong, and they, they kept that covenant even after Jonathan's death, uh, it reminds me of—I'm uh, sure you know this verse, Proverbs 17:17. 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. We see that Jonathan and David were separated by age, status, family, and tribe, but they were brothers. So, what? What about us? What about the bonds that we share as brothers and sisters in the Lord? We see, and you can look out here, that, that the Lord breaks down all those barriers because of our love that we have for him and the love that we have for each other. Jonathan, 20 years older than David, that barrier of age did not matter to them, should not matter to us. They were from different tribes. Jonathan's family tree was uh, of Benjamin, not of Judah. And of course that wouldn't allow him to, uh, to go beyond uh, that because Judah was the, the, the line of Christ. Being of different tribes did not matter to their bond. It should not matter to us. But we live in a world where tribes matter. I'm gonna give you a good example. Um, several months ago, and I think I shared this with the, the men at Bonham Rower, several months ago, my grandson, Joshua, was playing in a uh, basketball, the championship game, and I'd come in a little late, and I'm walking, and the stands are to my right, and they're filled, All right? You know what it looked like, though? You know what a black and white cookie looks like? That's what the stands looked like. It was a clear separation, and it was sad. I was sad to look at and see the division that that, that, that can create and uh it just struck me how divided the gym was and and ultimately our country and i'm not t- even talking about racial lines i'm talking about the division between um, liberal thought and uh, the bible okay i'm not even t- i'm not talking about politicians liberal and conservatives but there's certainly so much um, division in our country now that It should never be. We should be the greatest example of unity and barriers not meaning a difference. So as believers, we should not see tribes. We don't see color. We don't see status. Um, Even driving skills shouldn't divide us. (laughs) You know, you're always working on your your message and you never know when you're going to add something in. So this morning, you know, we're praying downstairs. You know, some of the leaders are praying downstairs, praying for Pastor Tim. We're praying for this service, and you know, we. And first, let me preface this with: we, we love our wives. We they're. We honor them. They're the greatest gift that we have. We we speak glowingly of them, um, but somehow we got on driving skills, and um, we were comparing notes and. So anyway, it was just kind of, kind of funny that I th- I had to throw in driving skills as something that can divide us, but uh, it doesn't because you know we really uh, love our wives, and, and if if they they some of them you know they drive really maybe better than us, um, and some not. But we as the church, those who love Christ, there should be no age difference that that. Separates us, no color, uh, no status. None of those things should matter to us. And if you struggle with any of those differences, you need to lay them at the feet of Jesus. There's no place for it. Uh, we, we can't move forward. No church can move forward without the unity that comes um, from the Savior. Now, we do tend to socialize with people who are like us. And I mean it this way. If you have young children and, you know, someone in the church has young children, those things bring you together. There's nothing wrong with that. But I will give you this um, advice. They shouldn't be your only friends at church. There is a richness of life experienced when you have young and old friends. Maybe you're in between. Maybe you're midlife. uh, But you should have friends of, you know, the 20s, 20-somethings that, that are maybe new to Christ. The 60 somethings that have a great life experience. There's a richness to it. Do you have friends like that? Do you have friends that are there for you in a drop of a hat? Um, I'll give you a good example. <clears throat> and I, I'm going to talk about my son in law a little bit. Um, so a brother called him up one Saturday morning. It was a cold Saturday morning, uh, it was raining. And he had an issue, uh, our, our brother and the Lord had an issue with his sewer line. And so, I don't know about you, but that would be my first thing I want to do on a Saturday morning when it's raining to help him out in this field and doing whatever they had to do. But he went without any hesitation, no complaining. He went to help a brother. That is a friend. Okay? That's a friend when you do something like that. So, do you have friends like that? Are, are you a friend? Like that. Bonds that are cultivated by love for the Lord first will have the actions that will flow from your heart, and that that would be one of them. Get to know people in our church of all ages. You know, we see a Lord doing a work in our church, He's added to this church, there's no doubt about it. But we need our relationships to continue to grow in the love of Jesus. And God will continue to send us new people. Why? To be discipled, to be edified, and to do the work of the ministry. We'll be getting into Ephesians. Uh, Pastor Tim will be getting into Ephesians in the next several weeks. In chapter four, where it talks about really the the reason we do church. That's why we do it. So that people would be discipled, edified, and go out and preach to a lost world. Let's pray.